At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. All righty, welcome to the show today, folks. This is Doug Crow, your host from the Author Your Brand show. And each day we talk to a new author about their book, their background, how the book can help make your life better. So today we've got a guy who's got a book. It's got a great title. It's called Gorillas Can Dance. I've never seen a gorilla dance. Maybe he'll explain the title to us. He explains uh, one very successful strategy that has worked for leading corporations such as Microsoft, Unilever, and even, even startups. Um, he's a professor of international business and strategy, associate dean, MBA, at the China Europe International Business School in Shanghai, China. And he addresses key issues facing corporations who wish to develop um, an initiative based on his years of research and interviews with leading practitioners in this field. So today we're going to learn some key things. So stay tuned to this. Um, how to focus on the three pillars of synergy, interface, and exemplar to achieve outstanding results in partnerships. He's going to talk about why the very thing that attracts large corporations and startups, their differences, also how to make it you know difficult to work together. And we're also talking about the history and lessons learned through Microsoft's BizSpark and BizSpark One programs. Very curious about that. So without further ado, our guest today, uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Shamin Prashantham. So this is how to hide the name. Is it pretty close? You did pretty okay. You did pretty okay, Doug. Thank All you right, very, very much. Good. Great. So we'll talk about your book in a second. I want to hear more about your background. You've got all these credentials, MBA and international business and all that stuff. So um, how'd you get started in that? What was the, what was the, the origin story of you were a kid growing up and you want to go to business or what? You know, so I was uh, born in India to an Indian father and a Sri Lankan mother. And my earliest years were in the U.S. actually shortly after I was born. My parents went to grad school. But then eventually came back uh, or went back to India to run a, an NGO. And in fact, the, the NGO is celebrating its 50th um, anniversary this year in the space of mental health. But I myself ended up in Scotland over two decades ago and uh, went to grad school and uh, did a PhD in Glasgow, Scotland. And uh, my focus was on international business. I never thought I'd become an academic, but I came across these two uh, very inspiring professors, Neil Hood and Stephen Young, who had been doing work on large multinationals that had set up uh, subsidiaries in Scotland for many years. Uh, but by the time I became part of that group doing doctoral work in the early 2000s, there was a lot of interest in how smaller companies were going international. And then I began to wonder why we were studying these two sets of firms so separately from each other, especially as I started coming across examples of some collaborations. And in fact, I asked a very distinguished professor, someone else at a, at a conference, and I said, do you think this is a topic worth studying, how smaller startups partner with large corporations? And his reply was, in many cases, the small company has no choice but to learn to dance with the big gorilla. And so I sort of latched onto that title and, and wrote an article in 2008 called Dancing with Gorillas. And that was from the point of view of smaller companies trying to work out how to partner with these big companies. And I sort of stuck with this theme, this topic. Uh, and as big companies themselves started doing more and more 
in relation to startup partnering, there seemed to be a lot to study. And I've now started talking to the big companies and hence the book is called Gorillas Can Dance. Wow, what a what a great thing. Yeah, there's plenty of, of startups who uh, I know they would love to partner with big companies with big PR departments and databases and lists and all that stuff. That's that's pretty clear to me why they would. Why would a big company bother mm. talking to a small one? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And uh, I think the starting point for the why, why do big companies want to engage with startups? And I think it's the recognition that what has made them successful in the first place is unlikely to contribute to their continued success. And we see, we've seen this with established companies time and again. Um, and it's, of course, because the environment changes, maybe uh, there are technological shifts. So Microsoft was really dominant in the era of the PC. And then the mobile Internet came along and then all of a sudden they're not doing so well. They made their attempt with Windows Phone. But of course, it was a distant third behind um, iOS and Android. And eventually they actually quit that space. But you know, the need to do things different because uh, the world is changing is a fundamental challenge for established companies. And actually, ironically, what has made them successful in the first place um, makes it difficult to make that shift because of the inertia. So a lot of big companies recognize that they need to be entrepreneurial. And one way to be entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial is to reach out to startups. And over time, I found it interesting. You know, you can see the benefits for, for startups partnering with big corporations fairly readily, as you say. You can see that, you know, there would be um, legitimacy, credibility by association. There would be learning outcomes. Uh, and also there would be leads in terms of new business opportunities. But it turns out from the big company's point of view as well, you can see these three benefits because many of them are now orchestrating ecosystems of partners to enhance the business opportunities they can work to work on together so they to get more leads but they can also learn new things because the startup might be working on some cool new technology that the big company is not familiar with yet and bizarrely big companies are now also wanting to be seen as partners of choice for young innovative companies and so they too gain more legitimacy if they can show that they're a good startup partner, because now big companies, in a sense, are competing for the hearts and minds of startups. And so it is in the interest of the big company to be seen as a trustworthy and uh, good partner. What you said makes logical sense, for sure. I get it. And I haven't done the research you have, so forgive me for my anecdotal thing here. But I, I've had my clients who are mostly smaller companies who've come from big companies do their startups right and they told me more than two or three times that they approach a big company with our thing oh we can do that in-house or we don't need you or you're threatening my territory is very big you know it people especially oh my god you're bringing a cybersecurity expert and their department goes bonkers they can't stand outside experts a lot of times um so for for my clients the people watching this who are leadership experts or they have some curriculum they have doing something yes i know their book could could be could do wonders in a big corporation um but there's a there's this hierarchy and this um territory that i've seen time and time again that they got to protect their 
their turf? How do you approach a company, a big company, and still make them feel like they're not being threatened? Oh, that's a great question. And I think this not invented here syndrome is, has been problematic the way you described, you know, the IT team feeling threatened if uh, someone from the outside is coming in with, say, a great cybersecurity solution. So I think what I would say straight off the bat is there will be still big companies that are very defensive and, and very difficult to penetrate. But in my research, I found a number of companies that have over time uh, developed more humility than they had in the past. And I think these are the ones to perhaps be talking to first. And the challenge that big companies have found um, when trying to do new things with, with companies that are very different from them, the startups, on the one hand, on paper, there's a potential win-win in the sense that they have the scale and the startups have the agility. So I'm talking about now companies that in fact have recognized they have to go beyond the pettiness of saying, oh, if, if we don't do this, then- Yeah, right. Uh, I, that, that, yeah, the, 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 um, the CMO might know that or uh, the, some, some people won't understand that. So unless you've got a directory in the back of your book of these, of these forward-thinking companies, what can a, a, a young company look for or who they talk to? Is there some kind of strategy for approaching them in the right manner? So what I would say is the, the, the smaller company needs to understand what's happening with the big companies. And I think um, big companies, first of all, there are many big companies now that are more open-minded to talking to partners of various types than there were before. Um, and I think the companies that are doing this well have consciously or unconsciously worked out that there are these very different companies that are worth talking to, but there's an, a paradox. The, the very differences that make it attractive to work together also makes it difficult. And they've put in place certain things that startups uh, would want to take advantage of. The, the most obvious being the uh, partner programs or initiatives that clearly signal that the big company is interested to talk to entrepreneurs. So when BMW introduced something called BMW Startup Garage in Munich in 2015, that's a clear signal to say, look, we're interested to talk to startups. And funnily, cybersecurity was one of the reasons they wanted to engage with startups because they were realizing they were going beyond the era of the internal combustion engine and uh, now they were going to have to deal with uh, digitalization and issues like cybersecurity. So they ended up partnering with startups from Israel in that space, for example. Now, when you see this sort of an interface, BMW Startup Garage, Unilever Foundry, um, Microsoft for Startups, I think that becomes a very clear indication that they, there are people in the company whose job it is to talk to entrepreneurs. And I would... Uh, as a startup in the first instance, make a beeline for these kinds of entities because um, this represents an interface through which the big company is able to talk to uh, entrepreneurial people. But it's also important to re realize that what's happening in the interface is preceded by a recognition of what the potential synergy should be between or is between a big company and uh, an entrepreneurial entity that they may 
engage in. And, and this can work very differently in different companies. So for, for a company like Microsoft, it may be, we have these technology building blocks, come and build your software tools on top of us. And so if you have clients who think that either because of something they're doing directly in the space of software or some other expertise they have that can help that synergy for Microsoft be even more effective, then engaging with them through an interface like Microsoft for startups makes sense. And there's also another step that follows. The ones that do this well have cultivated exemplars or success stories. And this too gives the smaller company an idea of what success could look like by engaging with that particular organization. Uh, and in some cases you think, whoa, if, if this is the sort of partnerships they're looking for and are showcasing, then this isn't the right gorilla for me to dance with. So I think looking for the interfaces, the explicit initiatives that big organizations have to engage with startups is, is often uh, a good starting point because at least you have people there with KPIs to talk to the entrepreneurial types and you can go from there. Certainly, if they've got the whole division or organization set up for that, that's a welcome mat, ready to go. Here, you know, here's the form to mm. fill out. We're ready to talk to you if you, if they obviously if they qualify. Mm. Are there any signals in an annual report or in articles or things where people may not have their, they might not have the, the department set up, but they're starting to consider and think about it? Is there are signals there that you can oh. people look for? Great, great uh, question. And I think when you see people from a big company showing up at startup events, and now this is happening virtually, so uh, it's even more feasible, I think that's a very clear indication of interest. And in fact, now when you find somebody uh, come across a name like that, you can even reach out with, uh, to them on LinkedIn fairly quickly. And these type of people typically respond. Of course, not everybody who um, shows this interest uh, and to whom you reach out will necessarily follow through for one reason or another. Uh, but I think, you know, in many ways you need to try uh, sometimes to reach out to different people. And the ones who are gold are the ones who are good at boundary spanning, meaning that they are able to form relationships with not only those of us who are outside of the organization, but perhaps even more importantly, able to connect with people within the organization. Because typically when an entrepreneur is trying to do something with the big company, it's not the person at the interface, it's not the person whose business card says manager, BMW startup garage or manager Unilever foundry, who's actually the one who's going to give them the project. They will have to then work with say, if it's BMW, the cybersecurity team to be able for them uh, and the startup to find something to do together. And I find that people at the bridge, uh, at the interface, um, the ones who are good at, at not only dealing with the outside world, but also me in some ways, more importantly, the inside politics, uh, that makes a difference. And you, you don't know until you start working with them. But I think that's something to be very attuned to because without that, uh, things don't happen in the end. So you still have Come on, see the book? Get, pull that thing up there. Gorillas can dance. I'm going to see that thing. There we go. Is there a gorilla? In the, oh, a bunch of gorillas in there. Okay, beautiful. 
these are a gorilla prints, so it's it's a prince. Okay, prints with them. Yeah. Oh, the footprint. Yeah, the big the big thumbprint. Got it. Okay, gorillas yes. can dance. Great title. So what's what's the in terms of doing your research and looking through this thing? Um, did you also look at like things that didn't work or people tried yes. things that were a complete failure? You have any good stories I, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. And in fact, some of the companies that uh, ended up doing things well, in fact, early on, either found that what they were trying was didn't work so effectively, or they even had some failures. And and by the way, Microsoft is my lead case. But early on, when they were reaching out to startups in Silicon Valley, um, it was a little bit awkward. You know, I, I remember at lunchtime speaking to one of the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who had attended this event that Microsoft had put on. And he, he said to me, you know, this morning session, it was a little bit like watching your dad dance because, you know, the feeling was Microsoft was a Silicon Valley outsider. But this is going back um, a long time, uh, well over a decade now. Uh, and over time, Microsoft figure, you know, they experimented with different models. Uh, one of the early ones they did, there was a 12 month partnering program. And then they ended up uh, realizing that A, maybe that was too long. Uh, B, they were not able to reach uh, uh, startups in some exciting parts of the world, like in emerging markets, it was, it was it tended to, in the end, become more um, focused on Western Europe and North America, which was fine. But then Israel started showing a lot of interest and Microsoft and Israel came up with a very different format, the accelerator model. And then Microsoft had the good sense to say, okay, well, let's give that a shot. And so they then launched accelerators in Tel Aviv and Beijing and Bangalore. And these have worked out quite well. But then they reached a point where they say, well, you can only do so few, um, you know, so many accelerators, there's surely other ways to do. So this process of, of learning, I think, has been happening, figuring out what works and what doesn't. And in one of the earlier, uh, one of the earlier formats that Microsoft used, they discovered that one of the startups that they had worked very closely with, given a lot of time and attention, a couple of years later, positioned themselves as anti anti-Microsoft, a big competitor. And so one of the learnings also was there are risks. From the startup's point of view too, there are risks, right? They may start working with a company today in an area that's complementary, and then a year or so down the road, the big company may decide to enter that space, and then they go from being complementers to competitors. So yes, things can go wrong. Uh, the companies that are really serious about this typically learn from their mistakes and move on, uh, but some actually um, don't progress very well. And so I think from the point of view of the smaller firm, the entrepreneur on the outside, uh, that phrase dancing with gorillas, I think is one to bear in mind because it indicates the potential danger of being trampled in the process. So, you know, you, you don't want to go into this being only optimistic. I think in a sense, you need to hold contradictory ideas in your head, which is you want to be optimistic, you want to be positive, you want to put your best foot forward. But at the same time, you also want to be cautious and circumspect. Don't necessarily show, reveal everything. You know, the, the process of selective revealing of expertise is also important. You need to show enough to get interest, but not so much that the big company doesn't need you. So you want to dance the grill. You don't necessarily want to go to bed with them, right? I get it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So I'm going to guess, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but are most of the startups that are doing that tech space, right? They're technology, medical, things like that. Yeah, correct okay. correct yeah. uh and 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 you know the applications are actually uh, many it's uh, not mm -hmm. like they're working only with the tech giants anymore uh, but of course nowadays it seems that a lot of uh, startups uh, do incorporate a strong element of digitalization and so that's an important piece of the story and i think the reason why big companies from many kind types of industries like automotive, banking, pharma, fast moving consumer goods have been talking to startups is the recognition that they need to up their game in terms of digitalization. And so the startups have something to offer. Going forward, an, another driver I'm seeing now is sustainability. Big companies realizing that either they need to do things better from a climate change uh, point of view, or they want to have uh, a positive impact on other sustainable development goals relating to health, particularly uh, due to the pandemic. And so um, startups with expertise in sustainability then can be useful. So for example, AB and Bev, the company that owns Budweiser, is working with a startup called Mitero uh, to turn garbage, their, their beer garbage, uh, the waste, the old cans and stuff like that into recyclable materials. And so now that would not be your typical digital startup per se, uh, but they have some expertise and know-how in relation to sustainability and materials that is relevant to this big company as it deals with a new imperative, which is sustainability. Yeah, love that. That's a really good uh, point there. Be in alignment with what they're looking for, what they're needing, what they maybe may, may not be set up to do. How many, or either quantify or general terms or a story, I always love stories, are these startups looking to just partner or also want them to become a customer? Like in the Budweiser, oh. it became, you know, there's there's a bunch of things that a, a gorilla can do for you, right? It can dance with them exactly. or, can, or you can, uh, you know, make more baby gorillas. Great question. So uh, remember when you asked me, what can an entrepreneur do if they want to engage with a company and I said, look for that interface that they've created, but also look for the synergy that precedes this. So I found, broadly speaking, there are two types of synergies that a company may have on offer. Uh, with the tech companies like Microsoft, it tends to be building block synergies. They have some underlying technology. They want you to build products using that. And this is very much a tech play typically. And then when the solution of the partner is sold, then the underlying technology is sold. So that's win-win. And the synergy, there's more one of a co-sell. When the big company sees that the smaller, that the startup has a great solution, then they may in fact help uh, the startup to sell that using their marketing muscle because they have uh, a stake in it too. But there's this other synergy, which I see particularly in non-tech companies, which I call pain point synergies. And that, this is the realization, you know, we need to address some issues and we're not so great at it right now. BMW in relation to cybersecurity, AB and Bev or Budweiser in terms of sustainability, for example. And this is where the win becomes typically the startup has a solution that the big company could use. And then in this process, the startup uh, becomes a vendor or supplier and the customer becomes the client. And in fact, BMW calls it 
the venture client model. They put themselves forward as we will be one of your first marquee clients if you can provide um, a solution that uh, addresses one of our pain points. And it's actually much more than an arm's, arm's length uh, exchange relationship because these are of strategic interest. And what those big companies have to do through their interface is actually make it feasible for these young companies to be able to deal with, uh, to, to commercially transact with the big company because typically most startups fail the criteria of procurement. The procurement department may say something like the young, the, the companies we deal with have to have three years of profitable business, three consecutive years of profitable business. If the startup is only 18 months old, that is uh, just impossible. So that's partly what the interface does. And then th these are the opportunities where the synergy revolves around a pain point where the big company can become a client for a startup. And that's actually uh, a very, very useful outcome. Do you, do you see many of these larger companies not just becoming a, a venture partner or a, a client, but an investor as well? Do they ever yes. invest in things? Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, and uh, that's not what my book primarily focuses on, but corporate venture capital arms of big companies have been uh, gathering steam for a while. Traditionally, these corporate venture capital arms, CVC arms, have tended to invest a little bit later in startups. So not in a seed round, not in a series A round, but in a series B or later. So BMW, even before they set up Startup Garage, they had, uh, they had established a CVC arm called iVentures. But as far as I could tell, the BMW Startup Garage guys were dealing with relatively early stage companies, say startups that were less than two years old. But the iVentures, the investment arm that would invest, say, 10, uh, take a 10% stake in a company, uh, would typically invest in startups that were three to five years old. Uh, and so that's been a big difference. Now, of course, CVC, even CVC arms are um, investing in slightly younger startups and some of these non-equity partnering programs like BMW Startup Garage are talking to more mature startups. So we're now beginning to see a blurring of lines. And it is conceivable that a startup that's worked with a partner program could get on the radar of the big company and be a candidate for investment. Yeah, that makes total sense. Very good. This is very fascinating material for all you people out there who are looking to take your, your business, your startup, your, your small company to the big leagues. You can kind of grow your way there over the next decade or two, or maybe you could pick up a partnership or a new friend in the world of the Fortune 1000. Fascinating topic, Shamina. I really appreciate it. Where can we get your book? Amazon, I'm guessing? Yes, I think it's... Um widely available on Amazon. Uh, and I have a website, which is www.gorillascandance.com with uh, links to other uh, e-commerce sites. We'll go there. Thank you so much for your time, Tim. I appreciate you. I can't wait. To, I can't wait to get this book. I'm definitely going to order this one. I love it. Thank you so much. It was great, great. talking you to you. Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, that concludes the show today. Get that book. Go to gorillascandance.com. Get this thing. Dive into it. Expand your thinking. Great concept. Thank you so much. Uh, that concludes the show today. Don't forget to tune in and click below and subscribe for some free goodies to our show. Until next time, this is Doug Crow.